is a real blessing to be with you this morning, and I have thoroughly enjoyed and been blessed uh, to unite my heart and voice with yours in worship, and it has been sweet, and uh, sometimes the time of worship and, and praising God with music touches you very personally, and this has certainly done that for me. Thank you, Pastor Josh, for leading us in that. I'm very, very grateful to uh, your pastor for allowing me to join you here today and include me in your time and allow me to share the word. So thank you very much, Pastor Jeremy. appreciate that so much and good to reconnect over some after some years. I don't remember anything that happened in the Dean of Men's office or in the dorms. My, my mind is blank, so you have nothing to worry about about all that. So don't worry about that. But uh, my, uh, my wife and I experienced, I guess I would describe it as an unusual leading of the Lord in our lives. Of course, a lot of times it seems unusual, right, the way God leads us. But uh, seven years ago, when he moved us from one assignment to another, uh, from being a pastor of a church and being in pastoral ministry for 25 years to uh, the world of college and uh, teaching in Bible college. And it was a major adjustment, a big move from South Carolina to Iowa, as maybe you can imagine. Uh, very different, just locationally, culturally, all of it. Um, but what a, what a wonderful opportunity it has been for us to experience God's leading and confirmation in that and then to use us there at Faith Baptist Bible College. And uh, I know it, may, it, it, it is a long ways away. I was going to say it seems like a long way away. It is a long way away. Other side of the Mississippi River out there in kind of that, you know, Midwest that seems to all, you know, there's Ohio and, and Idaho and Iowa, and they all kind of sound the same, right? Well, there's this, this state called Iowa. Yes, there's a lot of corn. The combines are running right now, uh, starting the harvest. It's beautiful. The soybean fields are bright yellow uh, here with the fall colors, and trees are starting to turn. So Iowa has its own beauty, uh, but really the reason that God put us there is to equip a new generation of men and women to do just what you do, to, to be involved in their local churches and to serve God in their local churches. And some of them, many of them will be just like you, part of a church and, and helping to build that church. Others are going to be in vocational ministry. Uh, so I, I work with the pastoral study students. We have about 50 guys in my program and just a wonderful opportunity to work with them. My wife teaches women's ministries classes. Uh, we have missions, music, um, uh, uh, te teacher's education, um, Christian school education program, and uh, office administration. So for individuals who want to be administrative assistants or executive assistants, and then uh, organizational leadership program uh, to be involved in Christian organizations or any kind of business really. And so just, just many opportunities there to, to be equipped and trained for life and ministry. I would say that what, uh, what we experienced when we moved there, what we found out there in the middle of Iowa uh, is a place with a, a very warm spiritual temperature. The, the student body, the faculty and staff just have hearts for God and love the Lord and have a heart to serve him. And it's uh, refreshing to be, to be uh, placed right down the middle of, of a group of people like that and a, and a ministry like that. Uh, but it's culturally conservative uh, and, and certainly committed to the same things that you are as a church theologically. And so very, very grateful for that. I would love to converse with you if you have any questions about that. If you know someone uh, in your family or somebody that you, uh, you're acquainted with who might be interested, uh, th there's some material out there, some view books, please take those. Uh, stickers, please take those. Kids, ask your parents before you stick them on the car or anything uh, permanent. 
but uh, help yourself to all the stickers you want and please just take any of that information. Uh, so I appreciate uh, your, your uh, connection, connecting with, with me in that way. Uh, I'm very thankful to open the word with you and that's what I'd like to do now. So I'm gonna invite you to go with me in your Bibles to Psalm 22, Psalm 22. As, as I was uh, singing and worshiping along with you, uh, many of the phrases and ideas in the songs connected very, very closely to what we're going to be talking about here today. And uh, as, you, as you know, in the Psalms, we find the, the, the heart of, of the writer being poured out in many cases in a very transparent way. And, and sometimes the, the writer is agonizing over what's happening in his life and being very transparent and very honest with God about that. But he, he arrives at a solution. Uh, the, the, the person experiencing this anguish arrives at a turning point. And that's what happens in this psalm here. And it can be challenging to, to maintain our confidence in God when we face difficult circumstances. And it can feel like God is distant. And that's what David was experiencing when he wrote this psalm. He felt as if God was distant from him. In fact, he uses the word abandon or forsake. So he's in a bad place. And there are times when you and I have trials and we, we pray about it and we trust God and, and it's resolved. The answer comes and there's a solution and we move on and we're happy and praising God for that, right? But there are other times when we experience major disappointment. I noticed that word in the, the hymn we just sung, disappointment. There are times we experience major disappointment, maybe serious illness, a family crisis, a financial setback, and we pray about it and we trust God and, and nothing changes. And the problem continues or possibly even gets worse and there's no apparent resolution and there isn't one in sight. And you know you're supposed to pray. And you are praying, but it just seems like God isn't hearing you because nothing really is changing. David was desperate for deliverance. It didn't seem like God was doing, doing anything about it. And he is an example to us. And what I want to call this is our response to feeling abandoned by God. You could probably use the word distant, right? Our response to feeling distant from God but I, I want to reflect what he was experiencing, our response when we feel abandoned by God. And we can learn from how David responded. So look with me at Psalm 22. Let me read verses 1 and 2 for us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God. I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. The first response that we see here, and that I think you and I can identify with, is crying. David was crying out in disappointment and despair. Now, sadly, we, we hear my God used very commonly today express surprise or excitement or it's just a filler as people talk and omg is common text speak used without any sense of reverence for god let's let's recover its meaning for our our understanding here this morning when david says my in verse one my god he's not just addressing 
some kind of uh, you know, distant or, or impersonal God. He's not just addressing one God among many, not even just the one true God. He's addressing, in, in his case, the God that he knew, the God that he loved, the God he trusted, my God. And, and even in his despair, he's, he's laying claim to the relationship with God that he had. And there is a lesson for us right there. Even when you're struggling with doubt and despair, you can cry out to your God, the God you know and love and trust. And then think about God and who you know him to be. David had his own understanding of God. Pastor Josh was encouraging us with knowing our God so that when we're in trial, when we're struggling, we can anchor to him and place our trust and confidence and get our hope from him. And that's what David was doing here. This is the God he knew, the eternal, infinite, sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful all creator of the universe. He made every organism and designed every system, and, and he's great. He's the God who is great, and he's also good. He's the God who makes promises and, and also fulfills them. He's the God who burns with a pure white light of holiness, but also shines with beams of mercy and love. And David had a degree of understanding of, of this God. So when he cried, my God, he, he's making a claim on his relationship with this infinite and holy and loving and merciful God. And again, I think there's, there's something for us immediately right away. We can say that if you belong to God today through faith in Jesus Christ, you have the same claim. You can cry to the same God. This God belongs to you. It is significant that he said it twice. My God, my God. When do you say something twice? When you're very intense, very passionate, you need to get somebody's attention. A floundering swimmer might say, help, help. To the passenger in a car that's on a collision course with another vehicle, you would say, stop, stop. There's an intensity there, isn't there? There's desperation. It's important. It's critical. And that's what David is feeling. There's a depth of feeling here. And remember, he, he is in an extremely difficult situation. He is feeling abandoned. And we're going to see more of what he was experiencing and the threats to, to his life. And I would say to us that if the extreme is true, then everything in between is true. So you may not think of yourself as being in David's situation this morning where, where everything's just falling apart and, and everything is pointed at you in a, a way that is threatening and dangerous. But, but if you're in any, at any point in that spectrum, if there's any degree of concern or, or desperation or worry or anxiety, you can lay claim to your God. You can cry out your God. You may be able to identify with the reasons for David's cry. He was facing an immediate crisis. We don't know exactly what it was. It might have been a military situation where he was surrounded and outnumbered. Some think that this happened when King Saul was hunting him, trying to kill him. And really it relates to anything that, that makes you feel helpless and threatens to take you down. And it may seem like God is not hearing your prayers and he's not aware of your circumstances. And so like David, you're facing an immediate crisis, but you also feel forsaken by God. Why have you, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would you do that? 
And it's a why question, because we don't understand. How many of you, as parents, have ever forgotten one of your children somewhere? Go ahead, admit it. Anybody do that? Nobody? Somebody? Okay, the pastor admits it. All right. We've done that. One time my wife left our, our youngest son uh, at, a, at a soccer game that, that she was at, and I won't tell the whole story, but, you know, there's that awful realization turning around to take him out of his car seat when she arrived where she was going, and he's not in it. Like, oh, no. Thankfully, somebody at the soccer field saw what happened and took care of our little son until she got back. It's a bad feeling to forsake someone It's a bad or forget someone. It's a bad feeling to be forgotten, right? And maybe you've been the one that was, was forgotten. Well, David's not just saying you've forgotten me. He's going a step further. It's something else, isn't it, to, to abandon. And sadly, that happens. People do abandon their children. And that's how David feels. He doesn't just feel like God has forgotten about him. He feels like God has abandoned him. And his circumstances are making him feel that way. And, and can I... Can I read into a little bit what David might be, uh, might be going on in his mind here and say that there's an edge, a little bit of a, of a hardness to what he's saying? God was not fulfilling his expectations, and he's reacting to that. And there's almost a sense of accusation, right? You have forsaken me. And again, I, I link to, I, I have in my mind a connection to that that were disappointment. My wife and I, um, over the past several years, have come through an ordeal involving some family members. And the way that we thought their lives would turn out have turned out very differently from what we prayed for, hoped for, worked for, anticipated, and expected. And I, I have confessed to, to my wife that I have felt disappointment with God. I have felt disappointment with God. And I've had to be, be honest about that with, with my Lord. And that's where we have to be careful, isn't it? Because it can turn into resentment. It can turn into pushing back and pushing away from God. I think there is a, a legitimacy to, to being honest with God and saying, God, I, this is hard. I am hurting. I don't understand. I'm feeling this disappointment. But if we develop resentment of God, right, and pushing, pushing back, pushing away, then, then we're going in the wrong direction. But you may feel sometimes like God sees your desperate condition and doesn't change it. But let me, let me again quickly add that the very act of crying out to God is an act of faith and hope. So if you find yourself crying out to God, that's good. That's a positive thing. He cried passionately. In verse 1, he describes it as groaning. He cried persistently. In verse 2, he says, I did it in the day and at night. He had not lost hope, and neither should we. He kept crying out to God, and so should we. But we shouldn't just wallow in our despair, should we? Our response to feeling abandoned should move from crying to confessing. And I want to read the next section to you, and by confessing, I'm not so much talking about confessing sin, but about confessing truth about our God. Look with me starting in verse 3. Yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. 
But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you as I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb, you've been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. The concept of being holy that he confesses in verse 3 is one for all of us to embrace, isn't it? And you, you see the switch from I and me and my now to you. And even that, that first word signals a switch, a turning point. Yet you are holy. And he, he, is, he is sending that, that anchor out to who his God is, isn't he? The concept of being holy includes being set apart or separated from everything else because of superiority. So he's saying, God, you are supreme over me. The other part of being holy is, is to be pure, to be free from anything that defiles. So, so here David is redirecting his focus from what was happening around him to what he knew to be true about his God. You are superior to me. You're supreme over me and you are pure. I'd like to take his confession and put it into some words that we might even adopt or something like them as we make this confession to God. God, you, all this is happening around me. All this is happening in my life. I'm discouraged. I feel forgotten, even forsaken, but you are supreme. You are infinitely superior to me. And what that means and this is not granting God permission. This is acknowledging God's right. This means, God, you can do anything you want. And you, you cannot do anything that you don't want to do. It's acknowledging that superiority, that supremacy of God and, and your submission to him. God, you're over me and everything you do is right. And you are pure. You are flawless in your character and your purposes and your acts. And therefore, whatever you do is right and good. God, I want your will and I want whatever glorifies you. I think that's contained in what David was confessing here when he says, yet you are holy. And we can do what David did. We can remove our focus from ourselves and, and transfer it over to God. And we can do this by, by articulating these truths about God. You are sovereign and right. But we can also do this by confessing our trust in God as David was doing. And he's kind of hitting around it, kind of doing it almost indirectly or implicitly. But, but he is saying, God, I, I do trust you. He says in verse 4, and you our fathers trusted, they trusted. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. So he's looking back to his ancestors, probably David and and Abraham and Noah and, and others that God had intervened and, and rescued at various times. And saying, you know what? They trusted you and you delivered them. And he says, I'm a worm. In verse 6, he's saying, but, but I'm nobody. I'm not like those ancestors. But then in verse 9, again, you see the yet you. Yet you. He keeps redirecting his focus back to his God and confessing these truths. He said, you were taking care of me when I couldn't even help myself. 
you made me trust you. And then verse 11, there's that, that call, that cry once again. You seem distant, but God, don't be distant because trouble is near. You're the only one who can help me, is what he was saying. And, and, and I think implicit in that is he's saying, I'm trusting you to take care of me now. And just confessing the truth about God and your trust in God is powerful. And, and it changes your mind and your thinking and your attitude about what's happening. And, and it spreads and it, and it affects others. This makes me think of a couple in our church in South Carolina. Uh, they were originally from the country of Lebanon. Their names were Vahe and Aida. Just a delightful couple and sweet personalities. And, and, and Vahe especially had a big personality and a booming voice that went with it. And he loved to kind of share his opinions about everything very, very loudly. And uh, he, um, uh, they invited our family over to their home one, one evening for dinner. So we enjoyed this wonderfully prepared Lebanese meal and some of the strongest coffee I've, I've ever had in my life, uh, along with a very sweet dessert, and it was just wonderful. And, and Vahe was known for, for these little things he said and his family, you know, talked about. He would say things like, that's top shelf, and that, that meant he really liked it. It was high quality. That's top shelf, things like that, or put it there and leave it there. In other words, uh, don't mess around with it. It's good as it is, and, and just leave it alone. Just all these little little sayings he used. So, so we had this meal, and, 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 and we had this uh, conversation, and he was injecting his loud opinions about various things. And partway through the meal, he looked at me, and he said, Pastor, what do you think of my bombasticism? <laughs> so I was like, yep, that describes it, Bahe, that's you. But he's very sweet about it, very sweet. Godly man, father and grandfather, beautiful family. And he was diagnosed with leukemia. And they treated it. The treatments held it off for a while, but didn't cure him. And eventually he realized that he was going to be with the Lord before too long. And his Vaheism during that time was this. It's in God's hands. We're just trusting the Lord, whatever he wants. That was his testimony. That was his confession. And it was his, the confession of his heart for himself personally, but also those around him knew what that confession was. He was confessing truth about God, but also his trust in his God. Reminds me of what Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 20. Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. That was Paul's confession. So in time of crisis, when you're feeling abandoned or forgotten or ignored by God, this is a time for you to do the same in what you say to God as well as how you talk about him and your circumstances to others. Confess the truth about your God and your trust in him. Now the next section in this psalm is a vivid portrayal of how bad David's problems were while he waited for God to intervene. So, so what we observe here that we can learn from is waiting. And, and this, he goes back to his problems. The problems have not gone away. They're a threat to his life. And, and his anxiety of soul continues on. And I want to read this description that he gives of, of what was happening during this time of waiting. God had not changed his circumstances yet. And so look with me starting in verse 12. 
Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a, a ravening and roaring lion. Now again, look, the focus is back on himself. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Now, I know where some of your minds are going, and we'll get there as to what you think about when you read that, and we will get there. But I do think that this is David's experience that he's relating here. And the peril and the pain continue. Verses 12 and 13 describe being surrounded by, by these vicious animals, and, and I think the, these are metaphors for the, 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 the enemies that are around him and threatening to destroy him. And he describes the... the physical anguish and, and the degrading personal loss of losing his clothing and then the peril and the pain continue. And there's a lesson there for us, isn't there? Because trusting God doesn't always make the crisis go away. And it can be a struggle to keep trusting God. But he will deliver you. Maybe not in the way that you would like or in the time that you wish he would, but there is some way in which God delivers. Uh, last summer, um, I had some excruciating pain in my lower back. So one of my hobbies is beekeeping. I have some honeybee hives in our yard. And as the bees bring in the nectar and uh, dehydrate it and it gets thicker and turns into honey, uh, those boxes get very heavy. And, and when you're working a beehive, it's, it's kind of an awkward position if you're lifting the boxes. You know, you're supposed to like squat down and lift up heavy things where you, you almost kind of have to lean over unless you're just going to hug the beehive um, and, and, and lift these boxes. And then you're twisting and it's just like the worst possible thing on your back. And I think what happened was I'd been working my beehives and, and I think I just wrenched uh, my muscle back there and, and strained my back. So we were on a trip down to uh, South Carolina and Georgia to see our kids and grandkids down there. And, and the pain just got, just got unbearable. And I talked to my doctor back home, and he said, you need to go to the emergency room and get it checked out, make sure it's not kidney stones or something like that, and also get some help with pain. So I went to the emergency room, and um, it's been a while since I've been to an emergency room. As a pastor, you know, you kind of end up there uh, somewhat regularly. And I've been there as a parent as well with, with our kids. It's been a while since I've been in an emergency room as a patient. And I was reminded of a, a process they follow. In fact, there was a sign over a desk that said triage. And you know what that is, right? That means somebody's deciding whether your pain uh, warrants you getting attention before somebody else and their pain or their problem. And, and so, which, which makes sense because some people's condition is worse or more life-threatening. I didn't have to wait too long. Thankfully, I got in fairly quickly. But I was reminded of the fact that when you're in pain, waiting can be hard, can it? It can be hard. Or if you're there with somebody you love and you want them to get attention and get help, it's hard for you with somebody you love to wait for them to receive the attention that you know they need. And that's how it is in life. We can be in, in pain and anguish and we're praying and we're trusting, but, but we're still waiting and it doesn't seem like anything is happening. And that can be a very difficult time. But, but God does care and God does intervene. And he did here. 
In fact, if you, if you look starting in verse 19, he says, but you, there's again the switch back to, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. You, my help, come quickly to my aid. So he's still praying. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And you might have a, a Bible translation where there's a space between the first part of verse 21 after the word lion and then the, the rest of the verse. And if you do, the reason for that is because in the Hebrew language, it's like there's an abrupt stop He's praying, he's crying out, and then all of a sudden, everything changes. You have rescued me. And some, some writers say it's almost as if as he was praying, the answer came, the help arrived, whatever was needed took place. You have rescued me from the horns of wild oxen. Somehow God intervened, and I can say for us today, somehow God will intervene but we do have to be careful about our expectations of what that answer will be god may remove what's causing the pain the source of the problems but the answer might be some great thing god is accomplishing in you or through you and he doesn't remove the problem but he brings something into your life that he does in you and through you that gives him glory and accomplishes his purpose. That may be the answer. One of the suffering Christians with the brightest and sweetest testimonies in our lifetime is Johnny Erickson Tata. She had a diving accident at 17 years old, leaving her paralyzed from the shoulders down. After 50 years of life as a quadriplegic, Johnny gave this stunning testimony. I was once the 17-year-old who retched at the thought of living life without a working body. I hated my paralysis so much, I would drive my power wheelchair into walls, repeatedly banging them until they cracked. Early on, I found dark companions who helped me numb my depression with scotch and cola. I just wanted to disappear. I wanted to die. She continues, what a difference time makes, as well as prayer, heaven-minded friends, and the deep study of God's word. Now listen to these words. I began to see there are more important things in life than walking and having the use of your hands. It sounds incredible, but I really would rather be in this wheelchair knowing Jesus as I do than be on my feet without him. That is powerful. And she recently wrote that she has this wish, probably won't happen, but that when she dies and goes to heaven, that her wheelchair could go too and, and that she could park it in a corner of heaven and stand in her glorified body and hold Jesus' hand point to the wheelchair and say thank you because of what God did and, and he changed her but her testimony radiates through the whole world and has impacted so many people and sometimes that's the answer isn't it it's not God changing things so we feel better or our life is what we envisioned it being our expectations are fulfilled but doing something so much bigger so much greater with far more eternal impact and sometimes that's what God's up to, isn't it? And confessing and focusing on him helps us accept and appreciate it and shine even more brightly for him.
We see another response modeled for us here. So he cried to God. He confessed truth about God. He endured through the, the anguish, waiting for an answer from God. And then we see him recounting the character and the works of God. In verse 22, he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of their congregation. I will praise you. And the word tell means to count up and to report. So, so I'm, I'm thinking back to who God is and, and what God has done and what he's doing now. And I'm calculating all of that. And then I'm putting it into a report that I'm sharing with everyone. Sharing it with the world, really, is what he's saying here. To the present generation, future generations, his own people, and all people. And I won't take time to read the verses here. You can certainly read through them. But verse 22 down through verse 31 He's worshiping God, and he's witnessing. He's sharing this truth far and wide to everybody he can, his own people and all people. Recounting the character of God in the midst of your crisis leads to worship, and it leads to witness, doesn't it? It's amazing that he went from, why have you abandoned me, to I want to tell the whole world how great you are. He can do the same for you. Now, this psalm does have another level of meaning. David may have known there was something more to what he was writing than just his own despair and God's eventual help. We don't know if he knew that or not. But you and I now have the vantage point of knowing that Psalm 22 is a prophetic picture of the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you read verse 1, you recognize the words as Jesus cried from the cross, don't you? When you read in verse 7, they wagged their heads. We know that the gospel writers recorded, described those passing by Jesus on the cross as doing the same thing as a sign of derision and scorn. In verse 8, when, when he's mocked, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Those words were, were echoed by the crowd mocking Jesus, recorded in Matthew 27, taunting him. While he remains submitted to God's will. Of course, verse 16 immediately makes us think of the Roman soldiers nailing Jesus to the cross. And all four Gospels describe the soldiers dividing up Jesus' garments as his enemies took advantage of his demise. And many writers look at this entire psalm and, and would say that verses 1 through 21 describe the crucifixion. But then the triumphant tone of verses 22 to 30 correlate to Christ's resurrection. In fact, the last words in the psalm, he has done it, can be translated, it is done, which sounds a lot like Jesus' final words, it is finished, when he had paid the full penalty for our sins. So, so circling back to what this psalm is, is addressing and, and what David is feeling about being abandoned, if Jesus used those words from the cross, did God abandon Jesus? In some sense, he did. In those hours, when Jesus hung suspended between heaven and earth, the one who knew no sin became sin for us. And God passed judgment on his own son so he could justify you and me. 
He punished his pure and righteous son so he could forgive you and me. He rejected his son as, as the world went dark, demonstrating for everybody that there was, there was an act of judgment taking place as God judged his own son and rejected his own son. He did so so that he could accept you. He temporarily abandoned his beloved son so he could say, I will never leave or forsake you. And Paul said it so profoundly in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger, or sword. He says, no, and all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. And he says, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, so that leads to a fifth response that we don't necessarily know that David had, but, but you and I can as we, as we look back on this and see how it pictures the cross of Christ and what Jesus has done for us. And that is refocusing, the response of refocusing on the love of God and the person of Jesus Christ and the gift of our salvation and the reality that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a devotional book by a German preacher named Friedrich Krumacher, published in 1854. It's called The Suffering Savior, Meditations on the Last Days of Christ. It's one of the richest devotional works on the crucifixion of Jesus that I know of. I'd like you to listen to his words and let this help you refocus your heart and mind on Christ. The Lord tasted the bitterest drop in the accursed cup being forsaken of God. Though we may be abandoned by the world's favor, the friendship of men, earthly prosperity, and bodily strength, though we may even be bereft of the feeling of God's nearness and the freshness of the inward life of faith. Yet God himself always continues near, and I love this phrase, and favorably inclined to us in Christ. He's close to you, and he loves you. However strangely, he may sometimes act toward us. Into whatever furnace of affliction he may plunge us, however completely he may withdraw himself from our consciousness. Yet in every situation, the blissful privilege belongs to us, not only to courageously approach him and say, why do you forsake me, your child for whom your son has atoned? but also to say to him, with still bolder confidence, you will not. You cannot. You dare not forsake me because the merits of your only begotten son forever bind you to me. That's powerful, isn't it? There's a, a newer hymn. Maybe you sing it here. 
has a stanza in it that goes like this. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side, the Savior, he will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need, his power is displayed. If you do not have this relationship with God that we're talking about today, you can trust in Jesus, the Savior that we're talking about today, who died for your sins to pay the full price for your, for your sins and rose from the dead to show that he is victorious over sin and death and has the power to give you eternal life. You can cry out to him, Jesus, I want you to save me. And he will. If you're a Christian today and you're feeling forgotten, distant from, or even abandoned by God, you can pray, God, you have the right to do anything you want. And whatever you do is right and good. You will take care of me. I trust you. I praise you. And I believe you will never leave me or forsake me because the merits of your only begotten son forever bind you to me. Father, we accept these truths. We joyfully proclaim these truths. Help each of us to embrace and apply these truths in the way that is needed. I also know that probably someone here has a family member, a Christian brother or sister, a friend, who's experiencing something very hard and who might become a channel and an instrument in the lives of those people they love of sharing these truths and pointing them to trust you. Thank you for loving us. May we love you more. In Jesus' name.